0: I'd like to start today our time telling you the story of two brothers, brothers named Esau and Jacob. Their conflict started before they were even born. When they were in the womb of their mother, Rebecca, they started to wrestle with each other time after time and wrestled often, and Rebecca even asked God, why are these babies so active within me? Why are they always wrestling with each other? And God spoke to Rebekah and told her, it's because you have two nations within you, two babies that are going to become two separate nations. God told her that one baby would eventually become stronger than the other, and that the younger would be served by the older in the future. And sure enough, those twins were born a short time later, and Esau the older was born first, and as he came out of her womb, there was a little hand holding on to Esau's heel, Jacob, grabbing on to Esau's heel as he came out of the womb first. That conflict continued among the brothers as they were young men and Esau was a more rugged man and he was out hunting and didn't get anything to eat so he comes back home and Jacob was more of a a homebody boy and he was cooking some stew. And Jacob was able to get the birthright, the firstborn right that belonged to Esau. Jacob was able to get it Through the food he offered to Esau In Esau's time of weakness And that hostility continued as as two nations began Esau's family became known as Edom Jacob's family became known as Israel The Edomites settled in the southeast area of Judah And southeast of the promised land And when Israel was released from Egypt And they were traveling to the promised land A shortcut would have been to go through Edom Right into the promised land But the Edomites told Israel, no, they couldn't travel through their land and had to travel all the way around. That hostility continued into the nation of Israel when they were in the promised land. Kings like Saul, David, Solomon, and the general Joab all had run-ins and problems with the Edomites. In 2 Chronicles, the Edomites even joined two other nations in coming to Israel to try to defeat Israel and do war against them. The story of Jacob and Esau continued into two nations that didn't like each other and didn't get along. Jacob and Esau, they were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, and they were the grandsons of Abraham and Sarah. And their story gives us background for some of the feuds that we read about in the Old Testament and gives us background for a prophecy that God delivers through a man named Obadiah that we've read this morning. Now, last week I mentioned as we were approaching the book of Philemon, that book is probably the best known out of these five one-chapter books that we're looking at for these five weeks. And my bet is at least for me personally obadiah is the least known out of these five one chapter books see obadiah is one of the 12 books that we have in our bible that we call a minor prophet in the old testament it's a one chapter book in the old testament it's the shortest book in the entire old testament but it's called a minor prophet not because of its size It's, I'm sorry, it's called a minor prophet because of its size, not because of its significance. And as we go through these 21 verses together this morning, I think you'll see that these words originally spoken through Obadiah were significant and relevant for the people he was giving them to. And you'll see they are significant and relevant for us living today in the 21st century. Now he starts out this prophecy here, this book of the Bible that we call a a prophet, with the divine oracle in verse 1. It says, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, arise and let us go against her for battle.'" Now, in this one verse, I want us to make sure we understand the nature of this prophecy, the source, the man, and the timing which he gives it. Now, the nature is there at the very beginning, the vision of Obadiah. This is something that Obadiah saw mentally and spiritually, and it's something that he heard from God. And we see the source there, thus says the Lord God this is a message from god to people it's not a message from humans that have vengeance they want on another nation this is a supernaturally given message from god and we're told about the prophet just by his name the vision of obadiah now there are 12 different men in the old testament named obadiah and the difficult part of this book is that we don't have anything that tells us what family he comes from. We don't know his father's name and we don't know the king under which he ruled. That was the usual way prophets would introduce themselves. They would describe their family name or at least they would tell us what kings they are speaking these words under, the timing. But we don't know that. But there is a guy named Obadiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles 21, that ministers from 848 B.C. to 841 B.C. in the 9th century under King Jehoram, and that's likely this Obadiah. And even in Chronicles there, that Obadiah gives a message from the Lord in the context that Chronicles tells. So this Obadiah is one of the early writing prophets we have in our Bible, ministering in the 9th century around the same time as the prophet Elijah. So this is the divine oracle that we have in verse 1. And then Obadiah starts into this destruction of Edom that God is describing. And we're going to see the manner of God's condemnation and then the motive for God's condemnation of Edom in these verses. Notice at the beginning of verse 2, in my translation and in the ESV, it says, Behold. That's a translation of the Hebrew word hine, which means look, take note. The NIV puts it as see. It introduces surprising events or changes in perspective. God's trying to get their attention, saying, Behold. And here we read about Edom's pride is thwarted in verses 2 through 4. God says, Behold, I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. As God is describing the manner of his condemnation of Edom, first he's describing how their pride will be thwarted. The NIV in verse 3 calls them a prideful people. In my translation, it references their arrogance at the beginning of verse 3. And they were arrogant and prideful because in verse 3, it also says they live in the clefts of the rock. See, one of the main parts of Edom is they were up in the mountains, they were up in the hills, they were very difficult to get to. And even their capital Selah, which also became known as Petra later, you could only get there through a little gap between the, the stones, about as wide as our walkway here between the pews. That was the only way you could get there. And because of that, they felt proud proud and self-sufficient and secure that nobody could come and conquer them because you could only get there in one little way and they thought they could always protect their location. And that scene when they say in verse 3, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? See, this is a challenge that God cannot resist. No matter how great they think they are or untouchable they appear to be, God is going to show them that he can reach them even when no one else can. God says, I will bring you down. Then we also see not just Edom's pride thwarted, but Edom's wealth plundered in verses 5 through 7. God continues on, he says, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how will you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the man allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you they will eat your bread they will set ambush for you there is no understanding in him now when god is talking about thieves and robbers here he's describing how a thief or a robber when he shows up to someone's house usually they leave some left over if someone robs a house they don't drive a u-haul up to it and they take all the stuff with them and leave right they they take a few valuable things but they leave some the same thing is the reference here to grape gatherers If someone is gathering grapes in a vineyard, usually they'll accidentally drop some on the ground, or it was customary in that time that you would leave the corners of certain fields unharvested so the poor could come and glean for themselves. But what God is saying here is that I'm going to take and decimate you so badly, you're going to wish it was humans that would have done it, because they would at least have left you something. But I am going to take everything from you. He even references their hidden treasures, which were likely their their special things that they would hide up in the mountains that they thought no one knew about. So Edom's pride is thwarted, Edom's wealth is plundered, and lastly, Edom's people were going to be slaughtered in verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom, and understanding from the mountain of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain by Esau of Esau by slaughter. Here in verse 8, we have the first of 12 different mentions of day, a day of judgment that's going to come. Twelve times God mentions this future day of judgment that's going to come on them. And he brings up their pride again here talking about these wise men in verse 8. see from timon it was known that they had lots of wise people they were along a well-traveled route so they could interact with people from africa and europe and other nations and were very intellectual and even if you read the book of job one of the guys that comes elia he is a resident of Teman. he comes to give wise counsel to his to job in his suffering See, the manner of God's condemnation is that Edom's pride is going to be thwarted, Edom's people are going to be slaughtered, and Edom's wealth is going to be plundered. And the message here that God is telling Edom is that there is pride that needs to be dwelt with. You, Edom, are so proud and up in the mountains and and think you're invincible. I'm going to deal with that pride God is telling them. And that's a message for us in our own lives, that there is pride that sometimes God has to deal with in our lives. Because pride was that chief sin that led Satan to rebel against God and take angels with him. And sadly, humans have fallen and followed Satan's footsteps. But when we puff our chest out in pride, it does not impress God and pride should be a sin that causes us caution because it's kind of like the silent killer. In all culture, the silent killer, silent killer is blood pressure, high blood pressure. Because it goes unnoticed and undetected and the symptoms we don't realize until there is heart failure or a heart attack or a stroke. And Pride is that same type of silent killer in our spiritual lives because it it subtly moves in and it subtly wreaks havoc on our lives without us even Realizing it And we need to be careful of pride because pride doesn't have the same stigma as other sins that we Acknowledge and deal with in the church. Let me give you a for example If I say you know this guy he's a good man, but he's a proud man. We might think oh, okay But if I take this guy and I say, he's a good man, but he does drugs every single day. We have a little different stigma about that person than a proud person. And all of us have certain elements of pride we need to be aware of that come from different parts of our lives. For me, mine is based on the school that I attended. I went to a school in Dallas, Texas, and there's a saying about guys that went to school in Dallas, Texas. You can always tell a Dallas man You just can't tell him much. That's the saying. Because they have a reputation for being proud and know-it-all and you can't tell them anything and they have all the answers. That's one I have to be aware of and remind myself to listen and don't think I have the answers and things like that. Because pride in our lives often comes from our education or our experience or our family background. And when we're proud in those areas, it can lead us to start to cut corners. It can lead us to run over people that have ideas that are different than us. It can mean we make mistakes because we're not diligent to follow through and pay attention to details. Chip Ingram, in his book, Spiritual Simplicity, says, The more gifts, talents, power, and blessings we have, the greater temptation hubris becomes, and the more our drive for affirmation needs to be fed see pride often comes maybe from an education we have the experience we have the family heritage we have or our self-sufficiency but god does not tolerate pride god has to deal with pride and while god has this manner of condemnation he focuses towards edom he also gives the motivation for his condemnation of edom starting in verse 10 through 14. And we see Edom's sinful attitudes in verses 10 and 11, and then Edom's sinful actions in verses 12 through 14. We see Edom's sinful attitudes in verses 10 through 11, where God speaks through Obadiah, saying, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. When people came against Jerusalem and against Judah, the Edomites stood aloof and watched it happen their ancient ancestor, their ancient brother. They stood aloof. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Obadiah that I worked through this week, he says it's like they stood and watched indifferently, but the Hebrew might even suggest that they stood and they cheered on the antagonists, just like people stand and cheer at a sporting event. So those are Edom's sinful attitudes, but then we see Edom's sinful actions. Specifically in verses 12 through 14, God says, Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand in the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. As I read those, he probably picked up on the different sins. There are eight that I was able to count in those three verses. They gloat over their brother's day. They rejoice over the sons of Judah. They boast in the distress of Judah. They enter the gates of Jerusalem. They gloat. They loot the wealth They cut down fugitives and they imprison survivors Eight sins that God has against Edom because of how they treat the nation of Judah And a little later after this about 300 years later 400 years later Edom's going to encounter a sad downfall. I mentioned that these words were spoken in the 9th century B.C. and in the early 5th century B.C. these people named the Nabataeans from northern Arabia they come to Edom and they drive the Edomites out of Edom. Take their city, they take their high place and the Edomites have to go down and settle into a place called Idumea which is south of judea that's the greek name Idemea. they slowly fade away into history if you've ever seen indiana jones the third um, movie in the indiana jones series they actually have a scene from edom if you see that little narrow walkway and there's this, this magnificent entryway with these pillars that is actually petra that the nabateans built of which they took from the Edomites. That was Edomite territory in the Edomite city of Selah before the Nabataeans came. But what Obadiah predicted came true less than 400 years later. Just as God told Obadiah in verse 10 that the Edomites would be cut off forever, and just like he told them in verse 18 that there would be no survivor left, they were slowly faded away from history. And as we read about these motivations for God's condemnation of Edom, it teaches us there's sin that needs to be paid for. In the Edomites lives and in our lives too, there is sin that needs to be paid for. Now I know sin isn't always popular to talk about in church, but sin is a big topic in scripture. Chapters one and two of Genesis, there are no sin. Chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, there are no sin. But everything in between describes our interactions with God, with sin controlling that and interacting with us. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. So we'll take those four out. And there's still 1,185 chapters in scripture. That talk about us as humans interacting with God through our sin nature. And sin is any defection against God. Charles Ryrie says that sin is literally missing the mark. And Edom has missed the mark here. One cartoon I like to read is Frank and Ernest that comes out each week. I clipped this a year ago in January. It's on the it references the lord's prayer that we actually read earlier So I had clipped this a while ago and have this ready for today Frank and ernest go up to a catholic uh, church and they see the catholic priest standing in front of the church and the catholic priest is wearing his nice uh, Garments and frank says to the priest. We don't need to be led into temptation. We already know all the shortcuts Most of us know how to get into sin the trouble and problem is staying away from it. Okay? And just because we are Christians does not mean that we don't still sin. Lewis Berry Schaefer says Sin is always sin in the sight of God. It is no less sin because it is committed by a Christian. If anything, when we go from unbelief to belief in God, or when we place our faith in God for salvation Because the Holy Spirit indwells us and lives in us. If anything, we start to learn We have a lot more sin in our lives than we thought we did before we became a believer See that sin has to be paid for and it was paid for when Jesus died for our sins on the cross but ongoing sin in our lives needs to be avoided because it is against God's character, because it is hurtful to others, and because sin can be hurtful to us. Benjamin Franklin once said, sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden, but sin is forbidden because it is hurtful. And let me be the first to tell you if you haven't already heard it, but as a pastor, sin is hurtful to your lives. Stealing time or stealing items from your job is going to get you in trouble, possibly cause you to lose your job and lose your ability to provide for your family. Not controlling your mouth and gossiping about others is going to cause problems and wreck your relationships. There's sin that needs to be paid for. It's been paid for through the blood of Jesus, and it needs to be avoided in our lives as believers. So while these first 14 verses focus on God's judgment and destruction of Edom, there's a shift that occurs starting in verse 15. God shifts from the focus of destruction on Edom to a focus on deliverance for the nation of Israel. And we see this description of the day of the Lord in verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations... As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and will swallow. And because if they had never existed. Now that four at the very beginning of verse 15 is a translation of the Hebrew word key that can mean surely, It shows up as four in my New American Standard Bible and in the ESV. Uh, The NIV and the NLT, they don't translate it. But that word shows that there's another transition occurring here. And the transition is that this is the pivot and the climax of the entire book. This is the climax and peak of this prophecy. Where God is starting to shift his attention from the Edomites And even though he's still talking about Edomites, he's describing what it's going to mean for the nation of Israel, of which Obadiah lived in. And that day of the Lord there, verse 15, is a phrase you probably have heard, the day of the Lord. It describes the time of Christ's second coming and all the judgment that God and Jesus does when Jesus comes back. In here, as Obadiah speaks it, we see Edom's near judgment in history as a preview of this far judgment in the future that Jesus is going to have when he comes back. See, the Lord's day is when he brings everything under his rule. Edom's humiliation foreshadows how Christ will return to the earth and subdue any nation that treated Israel harshly. So as God describes this deliverance for Israel, he describes the day of the Lord in verses 15 through 16. And then he describes deliverance for the Lord's people in verses 17 and 18. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. Mount Zion is another way to describe the city of Jerusalem. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that they will be no survive, there will be no survivor on the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. God brings back this history, brings it back up, talking about Jacob, that brother of Esau. That there will be a kingdom again. And even references the house of Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Referring again to the nation of Israel. As God describes this deliverance for Israel. He tells them about the day of the Lord. He tells them about the deliverance of their people. And he tells them about the defeat of the Lord's enemies. Closing up in verses 19 through 20. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Seraphela, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim, and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess the Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, Will possess the cities of the Negev. Now, in the bulletin you probably got there, there's a small uh, map that's a little dark, but it tries to outline these different cities for you and show you the possible locations of them. Instead of describing where each one is, I think the big picture that God is giving Israel here is that they will possess the land that was originally promised to them, they will possess the land of the Edomites, which is south of. Uh, East of them, and they will possess originally what was promised to them and a little bit more. And as God describes this deliverance for Israel, it tells us that there is hope that needs to be focused on. As God speaks through Obadiah to the nation of Israel, and as God is speaking to us today through his word, there is hope that needs to be focused on. While Obadiah is a message of judgment against Edom, it also is a message of hope for Israel. See, prophets gave messages in the Old Testament to stimulate the faith of people and to build their confidence in the sovereignty of God. And that's also the purpose of the book of Obadiah here. One of my favorite books that I like to give away is titled The Bumps or What You Climb On. And in that book the author says god wants us to look ahead with hope and not with despair whenever the old testament prophets thundered out their predictions of judgment they always wove into the dark cloud of judgment the silver lining of hope in fact some of the greatest promises of hope in the bible are found in the midst of dark messages of judgment Hope is important, and hope is something that we all need. I like the story of a grandpa that was going to his his grandson's uh, Little League baseball game back when they used to keep scores of Little League baseball games, and grandpa got there a little late. The game had already started, and the opposing team was up batting, and grandpa goes to his grandson and kneels over as he was sitting on the bench and says, How's it going, grandson? And the grandson says, We're losing 18 to Nothing with a smile on his face. And grandpa says, well, you seem pretty positive, that's good. He says, grandpa, we haven't been up to bat yet. He had a strong sense of hope, maybe too strong, but we all need a little hope like that, that despite the difficult circumstances, we can make it through. And our hope as Christians comes from the fact that we know from scripture Jesus will return to the earth one day. He will administer judgment against the nations that have caused his people harm. He will establish his thousand millennial year reign on earth and he will usher in the new kingdom new heaven and new earth for us. Paul describes that for us in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He says for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord." That last verse we don't always quote. He says, "'Therefore comfort one another with these words.'" That's the hope that we have, that Jesus will come back and he'll return things back to the way he originally designed them to be. And lastly, in verse 21, as we conclude, I'll end with this. We see a divine declaration from the Lord. He says, The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The deliverers likely are judges that Christ will use in the millennial kingdom to reign on earth, just as God used judges at different times in the Old Testament to deliver and redeem his people, he'll use similar judges in the future. Pastor David Jeremiah says, The last chapter in every story is always God's, and it's always good. And while this little one-chapter book doesn't have a last chapter. It's only one chapter. I think Israel would believe it's a good message too. And I hope we believe God's last chapter and God's last message is good too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and some of these little gems tucked away in parts of our Bible that we don't always read even myself, that don't always know what some of these books are about until we start to read them and and study them. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder for us not to be proud as maybe as Americans or Christians that are part of a church regularly. Please help us to, to stay away from pride, as well as sin, Lord, that we all have different sin in our lives. Others might not know about it, but you know about it. And the people that do the sin know about it. I pray you would help those struggling with specific sins. Speak to them and strengthen them and show them ways to overcome that sin. So they can become more and more like you. And with that Lord I pray you would help us as we stay away from sin and pride. That we would always be ready for the hope that we have in you. That Jesus Lord you're going to return. And that gives us something positive to look forward to, even in dark days and dark times in our lives or in our city, that you would help us with your hope, to give us hope when we don't, have, don't feel like any other reason. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll encourage you to stand for the benediction, and then we have something to share with you after the service as well. Dismiss us from this place with your blessing, matchless and mighty and powerful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.